Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth and part two of my episode, A Portrait of Yoko Ono, with Madeline Baccaro, author of In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. A reminder that you can find reviews and more information about the book at inyourmindbook.com, and you can order your copy from conceptualbooks.com. of intermission part two when we left off last week yoko had made her way to london from new york to take part in the destruction and art symposium following from her performances she was invited to exhibit her work at the indica gallery this is where she first met john lennon john dunbar invited john to check out yoko's indica exhibition the night of 7th of november before its public opening the following day John had just returned from filming How I Won the War in Spain five days before. In the very first issue of the International Times on the 14th of October, it was reported that Yoko's Indica show would run from the 9th to the 22nd of November. However, the actual exhibition poster advertised in the following issue confirms that the exhibition ran from Tuesday the 8th to Friday the 18th of November. The official Lenin estate continues to insist that their first meeting was on the 9th of November, but it's not true. It was the 7th. On the 24th of August, 1968, John described his meeting with Yoko to David Frost. He was having a show at this gallery, and I knew the fellow that ran it, so it wasn't... It's a bit embarrassing being a Beatle anyway, going into a shop, never mind going into a gallery, because they either all leap on you thinking, you know, he's another mug, you know, like a Texan, he'll buy anything. <laughs> so, and I had a bit of a hang-up about art, too, having been to art school, and dis- disliked the sort of... I'd, attitude of the so-called artist, you know. So anyway, I finally got to this show, and uh, she had all these things on, like, all these, like, hammer nail things, and, and that clock there, you listen to it through a st- stethoscope, all the things, and at first I reacted like, uh, like a mug, you know, like the ones that were saying they don't get a badge, you know. I was thinking, ah, ha-ha, don't fool me with all this junk, you know. So then I, there was this ladder and a thing on the ceiling. So I climbed the ladder, and on the ceiling it said, yes, you see, so I thought, oh, I agreed then. It's okay, you know. I mean, it's like those jokes, uh, while you're looking at here, you're dribbling down your trousers and that <laughs> I mean, it's all sort of connected. I mean, people get a buzz out of that in the, in the toilet, but if you put it on in a, a room, it upsets them a bit because they, they've got preconceived ideas about where those messages should be. But it said yes. And if it had said no, well, I would have carried on with my cre- preconceived ideas about art and artists, you know, that they're all sort of, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. We, but he said yes, and that was enough, you know. And then she came up and said, uh, she didn't know who I was, and was saying, do you, do you like to hammer a nail in? It's five shillings. <laughs> so I said, uh, I didn't have any money either. So I said, I'll hammer an imaginary nail in and give you an imaginary five shillings. And she agreed with that. She accepted that <laughs> on the same basis as we accept her work. You know. I'd accepted her work, and that was, that was how we met, actually. <laughs> John always claimed that Yoko did not know who he or the Beatles were before they met. And then the guy introduced me to her, and she didn't know who the hell I was. She had no idea. She was living in a different environment altogether. But this is undoubtedly false. As we know, she had already met Paul and asked him for lyrics because of his status as a Beatle and a songwriter. 
What I'm willing to believe is that Yoko knew of the Beatles as a cultural phenomenon and the world's most famous music group. I mean, how could you live in New York in the mid-1960s and not have heard their name or their music? But that she was not interested in their commerciality. She was interested in the underground, experimental music and art. Teenage pop music was not her bag, so to speak. After all, in Tokyo, Yoko had missed the tsunami of Beatlemania that crashed on American shores in early 1964 and did not return to New York until the Beatles were well into their extensive North American tour that August-September. Also, Yoko was already in her 30s, and teenagers' music would not necessarily have been her cup of tea. Um, she was told who the Beatles were, you know, that they were in the pop world, and she that wasn't her world at all. I mean, she was born in 1933. She didn't have a record collection. She did, It was before rock and roll existed. And while the Beatles were at Chase Stadium... You know, she was she had done so much already in the art world and it, it, she was in a vacuum. She didn't really she peripherally heard of them, but she, she didn't have a clue. There's a book where um, she's the Beatles are sitting around talking about their Shea Stadium. They're just remembering it. And um, she says, well, what were you doing at, at a baseball stadium? And they said, hey, well, we did some concerts there. They sold out. And she said, oh, well, that year I was doing this, this, and that. Like, she was still in her own what she was doing at the time. And she had no clue at the the scale of their fame. Um, And she, in her mind, was just as important and just as famous as maybe John Lennon was. Now she had a little warped sense of viewpoint from that. John also liked to say how the aspect of Yoko's Indica Gallery show that really won him over was her ceiling painting with the positive message, yes, that greeted him as he looked through a spyglass at the top of a ladder. This is how John described it in the last interview he ever gave on the 8th of December 1980, the day he was killed, to Laurie Kay and Dave Sholin. I get that it's all white and quiet and there's just these strange things all on display like an apple on a stand for 200 pounds when the pound was worth $8 or something or whatever. And there's hammers with the insane hammer in it, all this very peculiar stuff, and a ladder with a painting on the sky. What looked like a blank canvas on the ceiling with a with a spyglass hanging from it. So I'm looking around, and there doesn't seem to be many people. There's a couple of people downstairs, and I didn't know who was who. So I get up the ladder, and I, I look through this spyglass, and it said, yes. And I took that as a personal positive message because most of the avant-garde artists of that period were all negative, you know, like break a piano with an axe. It was mainly male. I'm looking at the female here. <laughs> it was mainly male, male art and it was all destructive and you know. But here was this little crazy message on the ceiling. Interestingly, I came across Yoko's journals from late 1966 where she planned out her Indica show. They are reproduced in the Museum of Modern Art book that accompanied Yoko's 2015 one-woman show, 1960-1971. One page of the journals is dedicated to the design of ceiling painting, and Yoko drew out four possible variations of the message to be written at the center of the canvas. In the end, she decided on yes, but the message could just as easily have been no, exclamation point, or question mark. It's only speculation, but it's interesting to consider the butterfly effect that one small word choice had on the rest of their lives. Although John and Yoko would always remember their first meeting at Indica as the spark that began their intense partnership, a so-called meeting of minds, 
In other ways, it was not a particularly amicable encounter. John was expecting a bit more of an event or a happening, and Yoko was trying to put the finishing touches on her exhibition and didn't want anyone messing it up before the opening. Tell us about that meeting. With Yoko? Well, it was sort of 1966, and uh, I got a call from a, a guy called John Dunbar, who used to be married to Marion Faithful. You know, everybody's connected. And he had a gallery in London called Indica Gallery, an art gallery. And I used to go there occasionally to see whatever art show was on, you see? And he said, oh, I've got this, um, there's this fantastic Japanese girl coming from New York, and she's going to do this other thing, but she's also going to put on a, an exhibition at my gallery. And it's going to be this big event, it's only about black bags, and I thought, oh, geez, you know. <laughs> you know, these artists, they're all ravers, you know, it was in the days of happenings and paint and all that stuff, right? So, oh, I go right down there, you know, for the opening, goody, goody, you know. <laughs> You know, let it go down and see what's happening. I get down there and it's the night before the opening. I thought there was going to be a big party and an opening and the whole bit, you know, a big ha I didn't want to get involved. I wanted to watch, you know. I thought, well, this is a good con, isn't it? Apple for 200 pounds and hammer and nail. Who's going to buy this? You know? I didn't know what concept art was, which in a nutshell is the idea is more important than the object. So that's why you won't see many rich concept artists around because you, you can't really, you know, like the guy that wraps up uh, that. What's the guy that wraps up the... Christo. Christo wraps up things. Well, he doesn't expect you to buy the canvas. What he's doing is selling you this idea, whatever it is he's projecting. It was the same kind of thing, but it was, I hadn't come across it before. I said, you know, you sell a nail and a hammer, you know. So anyway, the, I said, uh, the gallery owner was all fussing around. He was thinking, well, is he going to buy something? And she's mm -hmm. not, she's ignoring me, you know. Mm -hmm. So he introduced us, and I said, well, uh, where's the event? You know, where's mm -hmm. the happening? Because I'd seen the bag. So she just takes a card out and gives it to me and just says, breathe. So I said, you mean that? She said, you got it. I said, uh-huh, all right, I'm beginning to catch on here. So, and then I see this hammer, this thing I hanging. I just remember his nose. He did it exactly yeah. like that. Well, you know, what else are you going to do? It? That was the big event, you know, I mean, all the way from New York for that. So I see the hammer hanging on the thing with a few nails in me. I said, well, can I at least hammer a nail in? You know, I've come all the way from the suburbs for this. And she says, no. This before the opening. She, and I well, it was everything before the opening. She didn't want the, the thing messed up, you know. So anyway, the gallery owner has a little word with her. And she, says, she comes over and she says, all right. No smiling or anything, because you know how she is. She doesn't, she doesn't, she's not running for office. She never was. So she looks at me and she says, you give me five shillings. Well, that's about ten dollars, maybe no twenty dollars. Are you kidding? Five shillings, about fifty cents or something. Or no, no, okay. those days are shillings. Anyway, whatever. Right, she's, give me five shillings, and you can hammer a nail. And so I looked at her and said, "I'll give you an imaginary five shillings and hammer and hammer an imaginary nail." And okay, <laughs> and that's when we connected really, and we looked at each other like you know that sort of something went on. Having driven into London from his home in Surrey. John wanted to engage with the art pieces. He climbed the ladder, he wanted to hammer a nail, and he took a bite out of her apple. Yoko was not impressed. As she told Carol Clerk from Uncut magazine, Yoko's first impression of John, suntanned from his month in the Spanish sun, as he looked at the hammer and nail painting like as if it's Mona Lisa, was that he looked very beautiful, a very elegant kind of guy, that nice feeling about it. It would be nice to have an affair or something with somebody like this. Then I thought, I'm too busy now. When he did the apple, oh well, forget it. 
Yoko said in 2006 that he came and took a bite, and I was very upset. John could see it on my face, and he put the apple back on the stand. <laughs> well, I didn't see her again for a few weeks. We went to a Klaus Oldenburg opening, and we were all... We, we were together. I went with Paul, and I don't know who she was with, but we got, I got separated from Paul, and I, I felt this sort of vibe behind me. And I looked around, and there she was, you know. And we were both very shy, believe it or not, and... <laughs> We, I don't know what I said. We said something. I, we didn't really get together for 18 months later. We didn't make we did love get till together two years. For we knew, two you think years. we're rock and rollers, you know, yeah. all the life that people lead. But, and it was, it's all right sort of uh, get coming on with somebody you know that's not going to go anywhere. You know, it's easy to sort of one night stand and groupies and that. But with a real relationship, I was so paranoid. And it was 18 months or a year before we even got near to. Uh, each other physically, as it were. Because <laughs> I didn't know how to t treat somebody, a, a real woman. I only knew how to treat groupies, really. That's, oh, that's not to say anything against my first wife, but that was when we were kids and the relationship started when we were both kids. So there was no, it was a different thing altogether. But this was quite a shock for me. To, and somebody who demanded equal rights right from the word go, you know. It was quite a long trip. But we've been together now longer than the Beatles, right. you know that? That's interesting, isn't it? People always think in terms of John and Yoko just got together in the Beatles. We've been together longer than the Beatles. As 1966 became 67, Yoko and Tony decided to stay in London. Their first big undertaking of the year was an expanded remake of their Bottoms film. The new concept would be to have 365 Bottoms, and each one would represent a signature in a social protest. To this end, they placed an ad in London's The Stage newspaper on the 9th of February, recruiting actors and actresses for parts in Yoko Ono's new feature-length film, Number 4. No salary paid, but full credit given and opportunities for publicity. Understandably, this only brought in a handful of recruits. Beatles biographer Hunter Davies, who visited the filming and wrote about it for the London Sunday Times, reported that the ad brought in only two actors and two actresses. The two women were not willing to participate once the nature of the film became clear, but the men were happy to bear their bums. In the end, nearly 200 people were credited in the film, more than half of them men. It was a real mix of Londoners, including actors, playwrights, set designers, a sound engineer, poets, journalists, two teenage boys, a professor, a BBC announcer who had hoped to remain anonymous, and two members of the soft machine, David Allen and Robert Wyatt. A note in Mal Evans' diary states that Paul McCartney also met with Yoko on the 23rd of February to discuss dropping his distinguished drawers for the camera. He didn't. There's a, a lot of things going on in that film, but um, her main objective was that it was going to be figuratively 365 bottoms, one for every day of the year. And it was like a petition for peace to show maybe a president or somebody that these are the people who are dying for, for peace. But also she was interested in the movement of the four quadrants of the, the, the frame and maybe like the, the Maybridge influence and it's just a visual aspect of it. And then the, the first one was silent, but the, there's a version of this where all the people who are participating in the film are taking off their pants 
and she f- recorded all of this. And the dialogue is just as important because she's got all these intellectuals like trying to philo- philosophize or however you say it, what this is about and why they're taking their pants off. And well, I, I don't know why I'm doing this or it's just really funny. So she's got humor in there as well. Around this same time, sometime after the 17th of February, Yoko attended a party at the home of Mario Amaya, where he played her Strawberry Fields Forever as an example of how pop music was getting more experimental. Yoko remembered this in 1992. That was the first John Lennon song that I encountered, and there was a party at the editor of the art magazine's house in London, and the editor said, Oh, listen to this, Yoko. When a pop song comes to this point, what do you think? And he played Strawberry Fields. And I thought, hmm, because there were some dissonant sounds and I thought it was pretty good for a pop song. (laughs) I thought it was cute. I thought it was some cute stuff. Because I was making songs with all dissonant sounds. And it impressed me. I was surprised a pop song could be that way. At the start of March, with film number four completed and edited, Yoko and Tony submitted it to the British Board of Film Censors for a rating with the intention to hold the world premiere at the Royal Albert Hall on the 27th of April. By the 9th of March, however, the Film Censor Board announced their ban, refusing to issue a certificate and stating that it, quote, contains material which is not suitable for public consumption. Yoko told the press that she would picket the film censors the following day with 500 supporters in protest of the ban. And picket she and Tony did with Arms Full of Daffodils, a poster that showed four frames from the film, and asked, what is wrong with this picture? Photos from the day show that Yoko's estimated 500 protesters were more like five. To appease the protesters, Mr. John Trevelyan of the film censors advised Yoko and Tony to take the film to the Greater London Council to see if they would override the board's decision. So that is exactly what they did, screening it for the council on the 31st of March. And it worked. The Greater London Council's licensing committee awarded the film an X certificate, meaning it could be shown in cinemas, but only to adults. The Royal Albert Hall premiere, however, was ruled out when the venue's Miss Herod rejected their application. The amazing thing about all this was that the press on both sides of the Atlantic ate the story up, following it closely with regular updates. One person who read about the film in the papers, likely on the 11th of March, the morning after the protest, was John Lennon. The London Times and Daily Sketch both covered the story this day. In Cynthia Lennon's memoir, John, she remembered, One morning, at breakfast, he pointed out an article in the newspaper to me. It was about a Japanese artist, Yoko Ono, who had made a film that consisted of close-up shots of people's bottoms. Sin, you've got to look at this. It must be a joke. Christ, what's next? She can't be serious. We laughed and shook our heads. Mad, John said. 
She must be off her rocker. I had to agree. We had no understanding at all of avant-garde art or conceptualism at that point, and the newspaper went into the bin. We didn't discuss Yoko Ono again until one night when we were lying in bed reading. I asked John what his book was. It was called Grapefruit and looked very short. Oh, something that weird artist woman sent me, he said. I didn't know you'd met her. John looked up. Yeah, I went to her exhibition. John Dunbar asked me. It was nutty. I didn't think any more of it. I didn't know then that Yoko was beginning a determined pursuit of John. She wrote John many letters and cards over the next few months, but I knew nothing about them at the time, or that she had come to our house looking for him several times. On those occasions, neither John nor I was at home, and Dot, assuming she was just another fan, hadn't thought to tell me. Whether John knew or not, I have no idea. This is a little disingenuous of Cynthia. The Lennon's housekeeper Dorothy Jarlett, known to them affectionately as Dot, gave a written testimony to Cynthia's divorce lawyer, John Rosenheim, in June 1968. The following excerpt is particularly interesting. Before Mrs. Lennon went to Greece, I had seen Yoko Ono at the house twice. I had brought tea and coffee into the room, and John and Yoko had always been chatting together. I had no reason to suspect any illicit association. It appeared to me that she was rather more a friend of John. She always spoke to John, and I never saw her talking to Mrs. Lennon. On one occasion I know that she stayed at the house overnight, but Mrs. Lennon was there, and I made breakfast for the three of them the next morning. For the rest of 1967, Yoko stayed in London and made her mark. With her performances, events, screenings, and exhibitions this year, she regularly appeared in the British press. On the 29th of April, Yoko's cut piece was performed by 21-year-old model Carol Mann at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at Alexandra Palace. This was a benefit event for the International Times, also attended by John Lennon. In newsreel footage from the event, Tony Cox can be seen supervising the cut piece performance. On the 28th of May, Yoko performed for the opening weekend of the Electric Garden Club in King Street. The performance was cut short when five policemen showed up to shut it down, and Yoko was tied with bandages to a chair. On the 4th of June, Yoko hosted a bee-in at Hampstead Heath. On the 3rd of August, Yoko again made national news by filming an event in Trafalgar Square, where she wrapped one of the four Landseer lions in large white drop cloths. Five days later, she and Tony held the premiere of film number four, Bottoms, at the J.C. Tattler Cinema on Charing Cross Road. In the late fall and winter of 1967, Yoko and Tony took her stage show, now called Music of the Mind, on the road with the help of Mario Amaya, visiting at least three English cities. If there were more dates, I have only been able to find information about events in these three. Amazingly, the first city she visited was Liverpool. On the 26th of September, Yoko held a performance at the Blue Coat Chambers in Liverpool Centre. The Blue Coat School had been housed in this 18th century building until it was moved to the suburb of Wavertree in 1906. John Lennon's father, Alf, attended and lived at the school in Wavertree in the 1920s. 
Not only was Yoko performing in Liverpool of all places, but the event was promoted by Liverpool College of Art lecturer David Clapham. In fact, the morning after the performance, Yoko and Tony gave a guest lecture in the building on Hope Street where John, Cynthia, and Stuart Sutcliffe had been art students less than a decade before. And Yoko's event in Bluecoat Hall was filmed by Granada TV, who were the first network to film the Beatles at the Cavern Club in August of 1962. The Beatles' story is chock-full of random coincidences like these. Yoko and Tony also presented a three-day exhibition, performance, be-in, and screening at the Midlands Art Centre in Birmingham in mid-October, and a performance and screening at Keele University in Stoke-on-Trent on the 6th of December. This mini-tour culminated with a performance at the Saville Theatre in London on the 8th of December, where Brian Epstein had been promoting rock concerts since late 1966. Brian had died three months earlier, but events continued to be held at the Saville through the end of the year. In September and October 1967, John and Yoko's association became closer when Yoko attended the Beatles' recording session for The Fool on the Hill on the 25th of September. The first known photo of John and Yoko together comes from this session, showing John playing an acoustic guitar and sitting across from Yoko in Studio 2 at EMI. It is not completely clear whether Yoko was there at John's invitation or whether she accompanied Japanese journalist Romiko Hoshika and photographer Ko Hasebe, who were there to interview the Beatles for Music Life magazine. Hoshika and Hasebe had similarly visited the recording session for It's Only Love in June 1965, met up with the Beatles in Tokyo in July 1966, and been part of the press party for their final North American tour. Nine months later, Yoko said that the first time she went to EMI, she was going to collect manuscripts from John, presumably the seven he gave her for the John Cage project. It is possible that this happened earlier than the 25th of September session, but it's probably the same one. Brazilian fan Lizzie Bravo witnessed Yoko attending further Beatles sessions on the 6th and 19th of October as the group worked to finish up the Magical Mystery Tour soundtrack and their next single, Hello Goodbye, respectively. It was likely at one of these first two sessions that John agreed to sponsor an exhibition of Yoko's work at the Lisson Gallery in London. In December 1970, John told Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone, The next thing was she came to me to get some backing, like all the bastard underground do, for a show she was doing. She gave me her grapefruit book, and I used to read it, and sometimes I'd get very annoyed by it. It would say things like, paint until you drop dead, or bleed, and then sometimes I'd be very enlightened by it and I went through all the changes that people go through with her work. Sometimes I'd have it by the bed, and I'd open it, and it would say something nice, and it would be all right, and then it would say something heavy, and I wouldn't like it. There was all that, and then she came to me to get some backing for a show, and it was half a wind show. I gave her the money to back it, and the show was... This was in a place called Lisson Gallery, another one of those underground places. For this whole show, everything was in half. There was half a bed, half a room, half of everything, all beautifully cut in half and all painted white. And I said to her, why don't you sell the other half in bottles? Having caught on by then what the game was. And she did that. This is still before we'd had any nuptials. And we still have the bottles from the show. It's my first. It was presented as Yoko plus me. That was our first public appearance. I didn't even go to see the show. I was too uptight. The exhibition, which on contemporary posters was called both Half Life and Half a Wind Show, and opened for a month on 11th of October, divided the gallery into four environments. The most famous of these was what John described, the half room, where everything in the room was white and cut in half. The other rooms were called the blue room, 
backyard, and Yoko and Tony revived their New York experience, The Stone. You know, well, the imagination was a big thing, and mind over matter always, you know. And she came from a place of um, being able to see nothingness, that whole concept, the Japanese concept of mu, you know. And that's why with her Half a Wind exhibition, she presented all these objects cut in half, a whole white room with everything painted in white. And, you know, people think, oh, she's, look at these halves of things. But what she's showing us is the half that's missing, you know, or, or she even on an idea where like history is not what happened, it's what didn't happen. She just comes from a whole different perspective. Once again, this event was covered by the press. What is remarkable and shocking to see is how the media's treatment of Yoko changed from before and after she got together with John the following May. In a review of The Half a Wind Show by John Gander in the Kensington Post of 27th of October, he portrayed Yoko as a beautiful Japanese girl with inscrutable charm. Gander described Yoko as a brain painter. Unlike Cezanne, he wrote, who painted with his eyes, or Van Gogh, who painted with his heart, she starts the ball rolling and asks you to join her and finish it together. And this is not a one-off kind critic. There are many examples in the British press from 1967 where Yoko is described as beautiful and youthful. Journalists were repeatedly underestimating her age, stating it as low as 25 when she was already 34. At worst, the journalists at this time were perplexed or confused by her art, but they were gentler and more curious. Comparatively, once she and John publicly became a couple, Yoko was famously described as ugly, a witch, a dragon lady. Fans and reporters decided that this was not the type of woman that one of the lovable Beatles should be with, and it unlocked a torrent of blatantly racist and misogynist commentary. One of the worst examples was Charles McCary's December 1970 article for Esquire magazine titled John Rennan's Excrusive Gloopy on the Load to Briss with the Yoko Nobody Onos. The article was accompanied by an illustration by David Levine that shows Yoko, a mountain of hair, walking John depicted as a bearded and bespectacled cockroach on a leash. When they finally got married, she said, you know, it was like the whole world was my mother-in-law. Everything <laughs> came to a head and everybody started bashing her and it just became horrible. You know, I've, um, I used a few interviews in my book that had been unpublished and I asked the authors, you know, like, what? This is beautiful. Why? What happened? And they said, "Oh, we submitted it, and um, they told us, you know, you have to, you have to, basically, you have to write some lies in here to make her look awful." And luckily, those few people refused, you know, this through the story. But there were thousands who did not, and there's literally lies written about her all the time, and. You can't do that today. You know, people research it right away and say, hey, wait a minute. Yoko has withstood a lot of hatred in her life and somehow found a way to turn it into her own personal power. It cannot have been easy carrying on when so many people have tried to push her down. And that speaks to her inner strength. But like any human, Yoko also has her moments of vulnerability and insecurity. On the 4th of June, 1968, while attending an early recording session for the Beatles' White Album, and with Take 20 of Revolution 1 playing in the background, Yoko recorded about an hour of personal thoughts on a portable tape recorder, as if she was speaking to John. This was almost exactly a month after they became romantically involved. There is a touching moment where she earnestly expresses her insecurities about fully committing to a relationship with him, because she doesn't know if his feelings for her are as strong as hers for him. 
Yoko even dramatically compares her fear and insecurity about the current precarious state of their relationship with being a kid during World War II and carrying around a poison pill in case she needed to die quickly. But I'm very, very happy now, and just I'm just sort of scared. If I can get over this scary feeling, then everything's going to be all right. The reason why I'm so scared is because it seems almost unbelievable. I can't believe it. That's what it is. But I just can't believe it. And yet, I can't go back. There's no way of turning back. Well, those are the things that sort of make me feel so scared. Um, every day I think, oh, it can't be. I couldn't be like that. I mean, today it's going to be different. I'm not going to miss him at all, and I'm probably going to be turned off something. And it still goes on and on. Even when I'm with him, when I'm very near him, and I still listen with all my senses and all my nerves. And, and then I say, well, no, no, well, that's like a fairy story. And And I get paranoid. And yet, it's there. It's always there. I suppose there are some people who are really like that, maybe once every century or something, that when a meeting is really, really good, probably that happens. Maybe once every two centuries or something. Or probably people who have that kind of relationship never bother to tell it to others, and nobody so that we don't know about it. But it's amazing that it does exist. And it's amazing that uh, the only time that I remember about my promiscuity is when I feel so insecure that I feel intentionally that I have to bring that out in me sort of protect myself, but other than that, it never is there. like a kind of uh, strange uh, calculation, maybe. You know, that's a kind of calculation bit, that the cleverness bit, you know, like holding back because you don't know that other person's feelings are. Yeah. But one has to protect oneself in a way.
Possibly after the 19th of October 1967 recording session, or another unknown session, John made a first attempt at seducing Yoko. In 1981, Yoko remembered... The one time he did try to make a move, it was so sudden, so clumsy, I just rejected it. John had invited me to the record studios. He suddenly said, You look tired, would you like to rest? I thought it was taking me to another room, but instead we went off to this flat. I think it belonged to Neil, the road manager. When we got there, we followed Neil in, and he started to unfold the sofa into a bed. Maybe John thought we were two adults, we didn't have to pretend. But it was so crude that I rejected it. I slept on the divan, I think, and John went into another room. After this encounter, the relationship, such as it was, went cold. At the end of December 1967, Yoko and Tony traveled to Belgium to attend the fourth experimental film festival at the Waterfront Casino in Knoklezut. The occasion was the perfect forum to screen film number four, and although it was screened during the festival, it was not entered into the main competition because Yoko and Tony had failed to complete the required registration forms. While at the festival, Yoko performed a version of Bag Piece in the casino lobby. When a TV reporter tried to interview her from inside the bag, Would you like more people to lie down in, in their sacks just around here? Yoko responded, No, I, I don't want anything. Just forget about me. On New Year's Eve, during a panel discussion for the experimental festival, French artist Jean-Jacques Lebel staged a fake beauty contest called Miss Experimentation 1967, followed by a Vietnam War protest. Yoko and Tony took the stage as two of six beauty contest participants, and as a precursor to the cover of Two Virgins, appeared completely and scandalously naked. This event led to Yoko's name appearing again in the New York Times on the 21st of January, which reported... A final discussion of films at the festival was marked by attacks on the social irrelevance of the avant-garde, denounced as an agent of American imperialism, and a very unplanned Miss Festival contest, during which five hairy young men and two girls shed their clothes entirely, saw the prize going not unexpectedly to a male. One contestant, the Japanese avant-gardist Yoko Ono, 
covered her bosom with her number plaque while leaving the rest of her anatomy unattended to, a perhaps unconscious association with her 90-minute film number four, which consisted of 365 buttocks of London's artists and intellectuals, each on screen for 20 seconds. When the festival ended on the 2nd of January, Jean-Jacques Lebel and his community of artists invited Yoko and Tony to join them in Paris. With no immediate reason to return to London, they accepted and spent the next month and a half in Paris connecting with the local scene as they had in Tokyo, New York, and London before. Their departure for Paris luckily meant that Yoko and Tony avoided the fine and three-month jail sentence the other four naked contestants received for their disruptive stunt at the casino. In fact, Yoko's sentence was lifted on the 17th of March the following year, but she was still nervous about driving through Belgium with John a week after as they made their way from Paris to Amsterdam for their first bed-in. While in Paris, Yoko tried heroin for the first time at a party. This heavy drug was one that she and John would struggle with on and off for years to come. Yoko remembered, I didn't know what it was. They just gave me something and I said, What is that? It was a beautiful feeling. John was talking about heroin one day and he said, Did you ever take it? And I told him about Paris. I said it wasn't bad. I think it was because the amount was small, I didn't even get sick. It was just a nice feeling. So I told him that. When you take it uh, properly isn't the right word, but when you do a little more, you get sick right away if you're not used to it. So I think maybe because I said it wasn't a bad experience, that had something to do with John taking it. Remembering her last encounter with and rejection of John, Yoko later said, Then, one day, he kind of expressed his feelings for me. I was a bit scared, so I closed the door on him, almost literally. I went to Paris. In Paris, I thought, Okay, what did I do? I'm never going to see him again. I messed up, totally. It was so painful to think about that, so I decided that I would never go back to London. Never. I'm going to start a new life in Paris. And fate would have it that Ornette Coleman came to a show I did in Paris. It was music and performance art. He said he's going to go to Albert Hall to do a concert, and would I come and perform there? It is therefore possible that Yoko and Tony would have stayed in Paris indefinitely, but for the invitation from jazz musician Ornette Coleman to participate in the show at the Royal Albert Hall on the 29th of February. A recording of EOS from a rehearsal for this performance was included on her 1970 Plastic Ono Band album. Yoko arrived back to London in mid-February, just in time to cross paths with John again before he left for Rishikesh, India, to study transcendental meditation with the other Beatles and their wives. Cynthia remembered a strange encounter with Yoko in the days leading up to their departure on the 15th of February. A few days before our departure, we had a meeting with the Maharishi's assistant at a house in London to finalise the details of the trip. As we entered the main room, I saw, seated in a corner armchair dressed in black, a small Japanese woman. I guessed immediately that this was Yoko Ono, but what on earth was she doing there? Had John invited her, and if so, why? Yoko introduced herself to the group 
then sat silent and motionless throughout, taking no part in the proceedings. John chatted to the other Beatles and the Maharishi's assistant and appeared not to notice her. My mind was racing. Was he in regular contact with this woman? What on earth was going on? At the end of the evening, Anthony was waiting outside for us. He opened the car door and, to my astonishment, Yoko climbed in ahead of us. John gave me a look that intimated he didn't know what the hell was going on, shrugging, palms upturned, nonplussed. He leaned in and asked if we could give her a lift somewhere. Oh, yes, please, 25 Hanover Gate, Yoko replied. We climbed in and not another word was said until we dropped her off, when she said, goodbye, thank you, and got out. How bizarre, I said to John. What was all that about? Search me, Sin. He insisted he hadn't invited Yoko and knew nothing of her being there, but common sense dictated that it had to have been John who had asked her to come. While in India, John kept in touch with Yoko by letter. While many letters and postcards John sent from Rishikesh are preserved in Hunter Davies' The John Lennon Letters, it's not known if any of the letters John sent to or received from Yoko during that period survive. I assume if they do, they are locked away in Yoko's archives. Hopefully we'll get to read them one day. In London, Yoko kept a low profile but was accruing a not insubstantial amount of debt. Meanwhile, stateside, in a tribute to its enduring power, Yoko's friend Charlotte Mormon performed cut piece each night during a five-day New England college concert tour in February and March. When John got back from India, and with Cynthia away, he invited Yoko over to Kenwood, and where Yoko had rejected him before, this time accepted. This is where last season's Two Virgins episode picks up the chronology, so that feels like a good place to bring this episode to an end. In the 50-plus years since the Beatles broke up, we have thankfully moved on from placing the blame on Yoko's shoulders. The world wanted a scapegoat, and there she was, always by John's side. But her impact is considerable. In early 1968, John wrote, Nothing's going to change my world. But as he committed to a new life with Yoko, everything about his world changed. First he left his art college sweetheart wife, then he left the band he had started a dozen years before, and finally his home country. Their partnership in Yoko's raison d'être, to challenge all art forms and conventions, gave John the impetus to try different mediums and activities beyond his safe circle of closest friends in a way that would challenge the public image of him as a Beatle. Whether or not the art and music John created outside the Beatles is better or of greater merit than his work with them is a matter of personal preference. Commercially and culturally, John and Yoko were certainly not able to sustain the public resonance of the Beatles' music. As we've seen, the projects that John and Yoko undertook in the early years of their partnership were extensions of the projects and artistry she had already developed since the early 1960s, from art exhibitions to unfinished music to peace protests. 
Yoko opened John's mind to feminism and the experimental art he had always joked was French for bullshit. John's impact on Yoko was also significant. The longer they lived and worked together, the more she moved away from her instruction-based and conceptual art into writing more structured songs in a conventional pop-rock idiom. Compare, for example, Hard Times Are Over on Double Fantasy to her Eos collaboration with Ornette Coleman to see her evolution as a musical artist. If Yoko's first husband, Toshi Ichinagi, was Yoko's colleague, focused on his own career as a composer and performer, and her second husband, Anthony Cox, was her supporter and hustler, in John, she found a mixture of these two dynamics. On the one hand, John was incredibly famous and creative in his own right and would forever eclipse her and her work. But at the same time, he was very vocal about championing her. His wealth and status allowed her to reach a much larger audience than without him. Yeah, well, I mean, there's an interview at Twickenham Studios and they asked her, you know, what, what John did for you, you know, in terms of your work. And she said, you know, he brought, he had me lighten up, you know, put some humor in because in the beginning she was dead serious. And that kind of hurt her in a way she didn't, uh, you know, she couldn't take the criticism too well. But I have to read this quote because this is, this is the essence of what John did for her. Um, She said, obviously, I learned all about rock and pop from John. He also had very astute observations about people on a very realistic level that I didn't have. Surrealism is very natural for me. It's easier for me to describe my emotions in a surrealistic way. But here was this guy who was very straightforward. I was beating around the bush trying to say things with symbolism. And he'd say, what do you really mean? You know, sometimes a surrealistic poem you read and and you don't know what they're talking about. It's just word weaving or mind weaving. It seems really beautiful, but what's the point? I would have headed toward that maybe. I might have been a nice middle-class spinster. Instead, John gave me back the body. He woke me up from my mind game. That was really healthy for me. So he kind of brought her to earth, but guess what? She did the opposite for him. For him. He, he took, she took him out of his restrictions and opened up his mind, you know, and he was kind of becoming an artist and she was becoming a rock star and they were just kind of merging their inherent, I won't say talents because I think of talent as like tap dancing or playing an instrument, their inherent essence. Do you think Yoko wanted to be famous? Oh, absolutely not. Not, not in the way she became famous. I mean, she just wanted to communicate to people that we're misplacing our values greatly. You know, we're, we're valuing, you know, paying money for art that's hanging on a wall when art could be used as a much more valuable tool to, you know, to make change and veer towards the positive or, you know, stop valuing money more than, than water, you know? And um, the fame really was kind of detrimental to her especially at that level and at that um, level of negativity. Lisa Carver, in her book, Reaching Out With No Hands, Reconsidering Yoko Ono, observes that Ono has made a career and a life out of doing exactly what she was not supposed to do and not being what she was supposed to be. And when she does tell us what to do, it's the undoable. I still find Yoko to be a puzzling character, But by examining the work and activity she undertook on her own path before and while her and John's paths merged, it helps me to see how the different, 
sometimes contradictory aspects of her fit together. At the end of researching this episode, I have a greater appreciation for Yoko Ono and her art. Just like with John, Paul, George, Ringo, or any other famous person, we get to know them by how they are portrayed in the media. The coverage of Yoko for many decades has been biased. I hope this exploration has allowed you to see Yoko as a whole person, through the deep lens of her life and work, rather than the one-dimensional version portrayed in history. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Madeline Beccaro for joining me. Thank you also to Olivia Barnes-Brett for more brilliant readings from Cynthia Lennon's book, and Karen for her Yoko readings. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode, or you have additional information about the history presented in one of these episodes, you can write to me by email to gimmesometruthpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at gimmesometruthpod. I post episode artwork and other relevant visuals on these platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a future episode.